Good evening, how we doing? Cool. Hey, if you got a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. One last time, John chapter 20 is where we'll start. You can go ahead and put your finger in John 17. That's where we'll be going in just a moment. As we jump in tonight, I want to begin this evening's talk with uh, thank you to you. Um, one of the things I said earlier in the week, and, and I wanted you all to hear really clearly, was one of the things everyone should have in their lives are people who are allowed to speak hard truths to them that make them uncomfortable. In other words, every one of you should commit to having people in your life who say things you need to hear, not just things you want to hear. And here's what I know. I, I know that this week I've said a number of things, and some of them have been hard for you to hear. At times you might have been mad, and at times you might have been convicted, and at times you might have felt like it was the Holy Spirit, and at times you might have just felt angry. But I'm just so proud of you and so grateful for listening and engaging, and I know so many of you have wrestled with things with the Lord this week. And here's my hope for all of you. My hope for all of you is that that's not a unique activity to your time here at Hume Lake. That it wouldn't just be once a year you do this wrestling before the Lord, but that every time your youth pastor gets up and opens up the word of God and proclaims the good news of Christ and the teachings of the scripture to you, that you would sit under that same conviction and that you would allow your pastor, you would allow whoever you're sitting under preaching to speak words of truth that don't just comfort you, but also challenge you. I want to encourage you to do that for the rest of your life. See, tonight I want to talk about what, what it means to go home. I want to talk about what comes next for you. I want to talk about what comes next as tomorrow you get into buses and vans and cars and head down the hill and head back to life as normal. I was thinking about it this way. It was 2014. And I was here as a high school pastor with a number of students. Uh, and there was a girl this week. Uh, and we'll call this girl for the sake of the story, Sunny. And Sunny is here this week, and she's sitting right back there. That's where my church was sitting, under the balcony, very back section right there. And she's sitting back there, and I remember throughout the course of the week, her week began like this. She was angry. She was bitter. She didn't even want to be there. And then as the week continued, her arms uncrossed, and suddenly, before I knew it, they were in the air. She had met Jesus, and her life started to change. See, Sunny came out of a difficult background. It was a hard life she had lived broken family situation, abusive family situation. Things were not good at home. Things were not good at school. Things were not good with her friends. Things were most certainly not good with her boyfriend. It was everything messy in every possible situation you could come up with. And that week, she meets the resurrected Jesus Christ. And her whole life flips upside down. She tells us as we start to approach this night, Friday night, she knows she's going home on Saturday. She says, things need to change. I need to break up with this guy. He's no good for me. He's no good for me at all. I need to stop hanging out with these friends. I need to confront some things in my life that have been dragging me down and destroying me because that's no more for me. She made a decision at camp that her life was going to change. The next morning, Saturday morning, we get on the buses and we're going down the hill. And for our church, it's about a six-hour drive. But here's what most of you know. As you start to get down the hill, something magical, terrible, and wonderful all at the same time happens. What? Your phone starts to get signal, right? And so it starts to get signal. And it's this amazing thing that your leaders all see and maybe you don't see it. Everyone's like chatting and having a great time. And then suddenly signal hits. <laughs> right? And this is what happens to her. So, so Sunny starts to get texts, and we're heading down the mountain, and we're still on the part where we're on the windy roads going down the mountain, and the guy texts her and says, hey, you know, you're getting home today. Let's kick it tonight. And let's kick it tonight didn't mean let's go do something wholesome and nice. It meant everything wrong that she was trying to get herself out of. You know what's stunning to me in her story? 
Like I just saw it so clearly in her moment that she had not even made it down the mountain yet. Like she hadn't even gotten to the flat part with all the fruit trees, right? She hadn't even gotten there yet. And temptation was already in her cell phone. See, I hope Sunny's story acts as a warning for you tonight that there are three things that are coming all of you tomorrow. Three things that are coming at you like a freight train. And I need you to be aware of that. I need you to be eyes wide open to what's coming at you next. If you're taking notes tonight, write down these three. Here's what's coming at you after camp. Number one, opposition. There's going to be people who didn't like that you made decisions for Jesus at camp. There's going to be people who don't like that you're going to post about Jesus on your way down the hill tomorrow. Not just that you had fun in the mountains at camp, but that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's going to be people who don't like that. Opposition's coming your way. Number two, temptation is coming your way. Some of you managed to avoid your favorite sins that have always bound you up this week, but the reason some of you have avoided it is because you didn't have internet connection. You didn't have access to the substances you use. You didn't have the normal people around you, and temptation is flying at you in the next 24 hours. There's opposition. There's temptation. And then the most tragic probably seems the least tragic to you, but it is the most tragic to me and probably to your pastor. It is distraction. Distraction. Like here, your eyes have been set on Jesus. You've been so focused on him. Your heart and your mind and your affection has been set on him. And you're going to get home. And all of this nonsense that just doesn't matter is going to come your way. Opposition, temptation, distraction. Open your eyes wide. They are coming at you like a freight train. And tonight, I have one simple task. And that is to teach you how to be the type of believer who can withstand the freight train that is going to collapse upon you tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. Tonight, I want to give you a clear sense of what the scriptures teach about how we leave this place and continue to walk in the truth of Jesus. It goes this way in John chapter 20, if you have your Bibles with you. We'll start in verse 19. Again, if you remember that, that we had Jesus, he rises from the dead. John looks inside the tomb and believes. Mary turns around and cries out to the Lord. She turns to the Lord. And Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. But then here's what happens in verse 20. Despite the fact that people had believed, despite the fact that people's hearts were already stirred, there's still this fear that's rippling through the disciples. John chapter 20 and verse 19 says this. It says, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Now hold on. Jesus just died. But then we get reports that he's risen from the dead. He's conquered the grave. He's alive. The first Easter Sunday happens. And what are the disciples doing? Are they throwing a party? Are they screaming it to the streets? Nope. What are they doing? They are huddled together inside with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. This is a remarkable thing. Like Jesus is alive from the dead. They are eyewitnesses. People are starting to report. The tomb is empty. Jesus is not there. He is risen. Just as he said, all of this is flooding in. What are the disciples doing? They're like, don't hurt us. They're terrified. They're afraid. And here's what I want you to know. When I say that opposition and temptation and distraction are coming at you, I understand that there's a number of you in this room that know it's coming at you, and you're afraid too. Like, I just want to speak that out loud because I think for some of you, you would love to stay at Hume for another 10 weeks. You'd love to just keep staying here. Yeah, I get it. It's a blast. Because for some of you, going home is not a pleasant situation. 
For some of you, going home's not gonna be awesome. Like some of you will go home and talk about Jesus to your parents and they will celebrate and rejoice about how good God's been in your life. And some of you will go home and tell your dad about Jesus and he will laugh that you got brainwashed at Jesus camp. Like some of you will go home and on the way down the hill, you will post something about how Jesus met you at camp. He's the way, the truth, and the light. You will be bold and talk about Jesus on your Instagram, on your story. You will talk about him on social media and you are terrified that someone's going to leave a comment about how they don't believe in God or how you're foolish or bigoted or small-minded for being a Christian. Like Again, there's some of us who are going home so scared, so worried, so concerned about people's judgment, so concerned about people's laughing at you, so concerned about people giving you a hard time for being at Jesus camp all week. And here's what I want you to know is going on in the life of the disciples, and it's going on in your life too. I want you to understand the role that fear plays in your life. See, fear is not just an emotion we feel. We all like to think of fear as just like something we feel on the inside. And it's true, we do feel fear on the inside. But I want you to understand that fear is so much more than a feeling we feel. It is actually something that governs and controls our lives. If you're taking down notes, I want you to write down this sentence. It could change your life. Here's the sentence, that whatever you fear most will control you. Whatever you fear most will control you. That fear is not just an emotion we feel, it is something that governs our life. I'll put it this way, so my wife, if you were to bring her up on stage and ask her, what is the thing you fear most in this world? She would not have to think, she would not have to guess, she would tell you right off the bat, some of you will say amen, she would say snakes, right? No, no, here's the deal for her. Like even just the word snake, she recoils at. One time, just to be cute and funny, I made the background of her phone a snake. She threw her phone on the ground. She was mad at me for two weeks, okay? Like she hates snakes. She fears snakes. Like get this. So like we have this wonderful hiking trail near her house where, where she grew up on, and people love to go hiking there. It's like this beautiful view. She's never been because snakes are there. And she thinks snakes are going to come out and find her. They're going to like slither up and find her. One time early on in our marriage, we were living in an apartment and we were on the second floor of the apartment. And at one point I didn't leave the door closed, the sliding glass door. And I got in trouble. She wasn't just like bummed. She was mad at me. And I'm like, why are you so mad at me? She's like, the snakes are going to come up. I'm like, we're on the second floor. How are the snakes going to go up? She goes, they go up the pipes. They just figure it out, right? She's so scared. It's not just something she feels. It like controls her life. We went on our honeymoon in Maui. And do you want, yeah, yeah, Maui. Yeah. We went to Maui. We were on a beach resort. Do you know how many times my wife went in the water? Zero times. And the reason is because she's like, the sea snakes are going to find me. I'm like, I, I don't think that's going to be a thing here. Listen, what she fears most in snakes isn't just an emotion. It controls her. It governs her. Like, whatever you fear most will control you. Like, for some of you, you're terrified of spiders. It's like you would never, never, never reach your hand under a rock to see what's down there. Because spiders are down there. I ain't going to do that. Some of you are afraid of the dark. You're terrified, so you leave a nightlight on. I'm not judging you. I'm not mad about that, but you're afraid of the dark. And so for you, shh, you're terrified of going into any dark place because whatever you fear most will control you. See, my wife is afraid of snakes. Some of you are afraid of spiders. Some of you are afraid of the dark. Can I say this? Some of you are afraid of conflict. So what you actually never do is you never draw boundaries in your life and you never say no to anyone and you never turn down invitations that you should turn down because you're afraid of conflict and whatever you fear most will control you. 
See, some of you are afraid of conflict. Others of you are afraid of criticism. So you're actually just like so afraid of people making fun of you for being a Christian that you never say you're a Christian. You're so afraid of people saying something negative on your social media, you'll never actually post about Jesus because you're afraid someone's going to look sideways at you. Do you know that I've known high school girls who are more afraid of being alone than they are of being in the wrong relationship? And so what happens is they end up with some dirtbag guy they don't belong with at all who's hurting them and abusing them and taking them down the wrong roads, but they are so afraid of being lonely that they instead choose to be in a relationship they have no business being in because whatever you fear most will control you. And here's the disciples. Like Jesus has risen from the dead and they are cowering in fear with a locked door because they're afraid people are going to hunt them down and hurt them. See, the disciples fear persecution, but here's what we must do if we want to go home and face the opposition, the temptation, and the distraction that is coming our way. If you want to face those things down, you must choose to fear something other than those things. And that thing you must fear is not a thing, it is a person. And that person is God. I want to reintroduce some of you to a phrase that has just completely slipped out of a generation. And it is the idea all throughout the Bible that you are called to fear God. You're called to fear him. The Bible, in fact, says that the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge, is the fear of the Lord. Like, in other words, we are actually supposed to have a posture toward God that says, I love God, I have affection for God, I worship God, I care about him, but if he wanted to, he could crush me in a moment. If he wanted to, he could take my life and I would have no recourse. If he wanted to, he could take everything from me and I would have no complaint. Actually, the call of God on our lives is to walk with a kind of fear toward the Lord. Now, now here's what happens. Sometimes we talk about the fear of the Lord and we're like, it doesn't really mean fear, it just means respect. And my answer to that is, yes, you should respect God. But fear doesn't mean respect, fear means fear. Like I fear God in the same way I fear fire, right? Like I understand that fire can burn me. If I like reach my hand into a fire pit, I don't wanna play around with that and neither do you, why? Because you respect it so much you actually have a healthy fear of it. And you should have a healthy fear of God. Listen, your fear is not of God's judgment. Remember we said that there's no condemnation left for you. But as you go home tomorrow, here's what we do. We walk in this fear of the Lord, this holy reverence, this understanding that God could crush us in any moment, that God owns everything, that God is in charge, that he is seated on the throne of heaven. And we walk with this kind of confidence. Because you know what happens when I fear God? I'm not afraid of your opinions anymore. You know what happens when I fear God above all things? I'm not afraid of being lonely because I know he goes with me wherever I go. You know, what happens when I'm, I, I, you know what happens when I'm afraid of God more than anything else? Like, I'm not afraid of confrontation. I'm not afraid of setting boundaries because I fear God above all things. I want us to have this fear of the Lord, this reverence, this holy fear of God that allows us to look to him and recognize his size and his majesty and his grandeur. See, that's what the disciples missed. They're cowering in fear, locked door, so afraid because in that moment they did not fear the Lord. It goes on this way in verse 19. It says, Jesus came in and stood among them. Don't you love that? Like the door's locked and Jesus is like, whatever. And he just walks in. That's what he does. Because you know what my Jesus loves to do? He loves to walk through locked doors without your consent. Can I say that to some of you in this room who have decided you want nothing to do with Jesus? You may be finished with him. He ain't finished with you yet. He is nowhere close to done with you. Jesus will continue to pursue you. See, Jesus walks through the locked door, and what does he say? Is he angry? Is he mad? Is he looking down on them? Is he yelling at them? Is he mean to them? No. He says, peace be with you. Like Jesus rolls in without their invitation and says, 
My peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. I love what Jesus does. He gives them a physical reminder of a spiritual reality. Physical reminder. See the holes in my hand. See how they drove a nail through my hand. See how they pierced my side. There's a physical reminder of a spiritual reality. Can I encourage every single one of you who had a moment with the Lord this week that changed your life to create a physical reminder of a spiritual reality? It can be a photo that you print off and put in your room. It can be a journal that you write into. It can be a little rock that just reminds you of God's goodness. Have a physical reminder of the spiritual reality of what happened this week. I want you to have that. I want you to remember that God showed up and met you here this week. It goes on in verse 21. It says, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Like in other words, Jesus looks at these disciples cowering in this locker room going, we don't want to go into the world, and goes, you don't belong here. I'm sending you out into the world. And can I just say this for someone who needs to hear this tonight? You don't belong at Hume Lake. Your job is to go back into the world. Jesus is sending you tomorrow. Your job isn't to stay here. The point isn't just like come to Hume as much as possible so you can meet God because God lives in the cabin right over there by the lake. Like that's not how this works. Like Jesus is saying, I'm sending you, and I believe that's what he's doing for all of us tomorrow. And again, if there's that fear, that trepidation, what's it going to be like? This is what Jesus does in verse 22. Here's his answer. And my answer to the question, how do you deal with the opposition, temptation, and distraction that's coming your way? Verse 22. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Why does he breathe on them? I think this actually brings us all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden where God breathes the breath of life into human beings. And Jesus is saying, yes, God has created you, but I have created you anew, afresh. The Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you. And here's the beautiful thing. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of every believer. Can I say that again in case you missed it? God lives inside your bones. Like you're not just going back tomorrow like trying your best to do this. Like the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you and energizes you to move forward. It's that Holy Spirit of God. And how does the Holy Spirit of God work? The Holy Spirit of God works through his word. Like when I read the Bible, I'm not just reading information about God. Actually, the moment when I read the Bible, I was up this morning sipping coffee, reading the Bible. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit was working on my heart. Even if I can't explain it, it's a mystery The Holy Spirit works through God's word. He illuminates our mind to comprehend God's truth and apply God's truth. What do I mean by that? The Bible says we're supposed to forgive people. You know what the Holy Spirit says? Forgive your sister. Forgive your ex-boyfriend. Forgive your dad. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Takes the command of God and makes it specific. The Bible tells us to give money to the poor. The Holy Spirit does this to me. The Holy Spirit does give to this person. Give to that organization. Give your money away in this way. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And then the Holy Spirit finally empowers us to live out this Christian life, to live out the life that God has called us to, to walk in obedience to the Lord. And that's what I want to show you tonight, how the Holy Spirit of God works. See, Jesus himself taught on this. Uh, If you want to go back to John 17, that's where we're going to be for the rest of the night tonight. John 17, verse 13, I want you to see what Jesus has to say about the Spirit and what it means for your life. John chapter 17 We'll start in verse 13. Jesus says these words. He says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that you might have the full measure of my joy within them. So that they might have the full measure of my joy within them. Like in other words, we've been talking this week about the truth. 
and the truth of God and the truth of Scripture and the truth of who God is and what he wants in your life. And I've been trying to insist to you that it is not just an intellectual thing. It's not just a thing you believe in your mind. It's not just facts you assent to. It is a whole life kind of experience where you walk in obedience and you don't just know it. You feel it at the core of your being. And here's what I think. I think some of you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say you feel it at the core of your being. Because some of you, if you were honest tonight, you would express something that you talk about at camp all the time, and that's this camp high you're experiencing right now. Like, I remember this in high school. I always called myself like a camp high addict, right? I'd go to summer camp, and things would be great. I was like super close to Jesus. And then as the summer went on, things wouldn't be going so well. And then the fall was always like, ooh, this is rough, right? But then winter camp was coming, right? And then I would go to winter camp, and things would be good. And then I'd go, and then there would be like a mission trip. And that would be like a little blip, right? And this was my life. I'm close to Jesus, I'm not close to Jesus. I feel the Holy Spirit, I don't feel the Holy Spirit. I'm in with God, I'm out with God. I would do this dance from camp high to camp high until I realized something so important and you need to realize this, it could change your whole life. Like, can I just tell you something tonight? You do not have a camp high because there is no such thing as a camp high. You do not have a camp high, write this down. You have an obedience high right now. That is what you have. You feel what you feel. You are experiencing what Jesus calls the full measure of his joy because this week you have been walking in obedience. Like this is the funniest thing. I talk to high school students all the time about this. They're like, I don't get it. I come up to Hume and I feel so close to God. I go home and I don't feel him at all. They're like, it's such a mystery. I'm like, why is it a mystery? They're like, I don't know. What did you do all week? Well, I came up here and I worshiped all week and I sat under the teaching of the word and I prayed frequently and I was with other Christians talking about my walk with Jesus. I forsook all the sins that I'm usually involved with. My eyes were set on Jesus. It's such a mystery. I was so close to him. <laughs> it's like it's no mystery. This is what you can experience your whole life. And I mean so much more than emotion. I mean that deep kind of sense that things are right with the world and God is living in your bones. That's what you feel right now. And listen, for so many of you, the reason you will lose the camp high isn't because you're not at Hume, it's because you'll stop walking in obedience. It's because you'll stop saying yes to Jesus, you'll stop repenting, you'll stop walking in obedience, and because of that, you'll lose it. See, here's what Jesus wants for you. Jesus doesn't just want you to know the truth. Jesus wants the truth to permeate your being in such a way that you know the full measure of his joy. You do not have a camp high right now. You have an obedience high. And here's the good news. Camp is only once a year. Twice if you go to winter camp, right? But that obedience high is available to you every morning when you wake up. And you can listen to Jesus and do what he says. It goes on this way in verse 14. It says, I have given them your word and, your, and the world has hated them. I have given them your word. In other words, the truth has come to you. They know the truth. They have heard what I have to say. And the world has hated them. And I want to pause on this for a second. Because Jesus says this over and over and over again in his ministries to his disciples. And yet we as modern 21st century Western Christians completely ignore this. Let me give you a promise that Jesus gave to you. It's not a promise I have ever seen on a coffee mug. Here's the promise. People are going to hate you for being a Christian. Full stop. You ever seen that on a coffee mug? I've never seen that on a coffee mug. I I've seen other promises. I've never seen that one. But here's a promise Jesus has to make. Because you follow Jesus, people will hate you. 
And so many Christians have become convinced that if we're just really nice and really sweet and really kind and compromise all of our morals and say we don't believe what we actually believe and downplay it and just try to be like the world, then no one will hate us. And you know what the result of that is? People still hate you. People will hate you because you follow Jesus. And the reason they will hate you is because they hated Jesus first. They hate the truth. They hate who Jesus is. And so listen, I'm not actually telling you to go out and try to make yourself hated. A lot of Christians are just jerks, right? And because they're jerks, they're hated. You don't even have to be a jerk to be hated. Like, I want you to understand this promise so much because I don't want you to be surprised when people don't like the fact that you're a Christian. I don't want you to be surprised when you have family members who look down their nose at you and condescendingly laugh at you that you've been brainwashed into the Jesus thing. I don't want you to be surprised when people make fun of you on social media for loving Jesus and talking about your church. I don't want you to be surprised for those of you who just graduated when you go off to college and some pompous professor with a PhD talks down to you because you believe in our Lord. I don't want you to be surprised. People have always hated Christians. Like 2,000 years ago, Jesus just, just so you know, they're gonna hate you. You should expect the same thing. You should not be surprised by it. And you sure had better not change what you believe to try to make the world love you because it will never work. It has never worked. You stand firm on the truth and you take what comes your way because Jesus promised it would. And even better, he promised he would be with you. It goes on this way in verse 14. He said, again, he says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they have not of this world any more than I am of this world. Like in other words, Jesus goes like, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, this world is no longer your home. Like you should no longer fit into the systems and the rhythms and activities of this world. Like can I put it this way? You should be weird as a Christian. There should be weird things about you. If you go to your high school campus and no one thinks anything is different about you and you're like cool and you fit in perfectly, I am deeply concerned for your discipleship. You should be weird. And I don't mean weird in like the I'm intentionally weird kind of way. I just mean like you're following after Jesus and people are like, huh, like I just noticed you don't use the same foul language we do and you just go, yeah, I don't. Like I noticed you don't say those types of things. I noticed you don't make those kinds of jokes. I noticed you and your girlfriend behave differently. I noticed you don't watch those kinds of movies. You know what should happen from time to time as a Christian? This is gonna sound so weird to you. From time to time as a Christian, you should be watching a TV show or a movie and go, actually as a follower of Jesus, I'm done with this and you should turn it off. I know that sounds so crazy to you because like filth and vulgarity in TV, it's just so normal. So we're like, we don't want to sound like weird, backwards, fundamentalist Christians. No, that's exactly what we should do. Like, I'm not going to tell you where the line is. I'm just concerned that some of you have no line whatsoever when it comes to media. Like you just consume everything else the world does. But what does Jesus say here? Jesus goes, I'm not of this world and neither are the people who follow me. Your life should look different than the lives of the people at your school. You should not fit in perfectly with everyone else at your school. In fact, there should be things about you that are just strange and weird and different. And when people try to figure out why, they're going to figure out it's Jesus. It goes on this way in verse 15. Again, he says they're not of this world, but then he says something interesting. He says, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world. So this is interesting. Jesus is like, you're not supposed to fit in with the world, but go back to the world. Make sure you're living in and amongst them. So like there's this interesting thing going on where it's like don't fit in with the world, but don't run away from the world. 
See, some Christians think the answer is this, like, I'll just move to a place where it's only Christians ever, and I'll just hang out with Christians all the time. Some of you are like, I could follow Jesus perfectly if I lived at Hume Lake, because no one at Hume Lake has ever sinned ever, right? Like, that's what you think. You think, if I could just get away from the world, I would follow Jesus perfectly. And yet, that's not what Jesus says. Like, look again at verse 15. It says, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world. In other words, Jesus is praying that you wouldn't isolate yourself, but rather you would be in and amongst the world. What's he trying to say? I want to give you a contrast. If you're taking down notes, write down these two words. I want to give you the contrast between isolation and insulation. Between isolation and insulation. And to get you that contrast and to get you to see it, I want you to think of a fish swimming around in the Pacific Ocean. Swimming around in the Pacific Ocean, he's just having a nice old day doing whatever fish do, thinking about whatever fish talk about. Suddenly there's a hook in the water and it looks tasty because there's a worm or whatever you put on hooks. And the fish, I just, I've never done fishing, right? And the fish comes up to the, I get the concept though, okay? Right? And then the fish comes up to the thing and bites it and then there's a hook and it gets, ah, and it's, ah, it's dead. Okay, right, yeah, we get how this goes. And then the fish gets cooked and thrown onto my plate at a restaurant. Like once a year I order fish just to be fancy. Once a year, thrown on the plate and I eat the fish. And here's the thing for those of you who eat fish. When you eat fish, does it taste like the Pacific Ocean? No. Like it doesn't taste like you just took the salt shaker and did this all over it. It actually doesn't taste that way. Why? The fish is constantly swimming around in the Pacific Ocean. It is surrounded by salt water all the time, and yet it is insulated against the salt water. That fish is in and amongst salt all the time, and yet it doesn't taste like salt. It is insulated. That is how you are supposed to live. That is how you are supposed to live. There's supposed to be this insulation around you where you're hanging out at your school or your college campus or your workplace or your team. You're in and amongst people who aren't believers, but the world is not seeping into you. You are not conforming to the patterns of this world. Rather, you are being transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is what insulation looks like. Now, here's the opposite. You could go for isolation, and here's the problem with isolation. You take the saltwater fish that's swinging around in saltwater, and you decide, like, I'll save it, and you throw it into fresh water, it's not going to go well for some of these fish. Like, they're going to die. They're not going to make it. It's not going to thrive in the way they're supposed to. That's what isolation is. And again, so many Christians think the answer is, what I'll do is I'll only have Christian friends and only ever spend time with Christians, and if a non-Christian ever approaches me, I'll just run away in terror, right? And that is not what God has called you toward. Like, again, the temptation when you're at a place like campus to think, if I could just be here forever, I'd thrive. And Jesus is praying the exact opposite for you. Jesus is praying that you would be around people who do not know him and that you would be insulated from the world, that you wouldn't take on their patterns and practices and ideas, but rather you would be present in the midst of it. The you, this is so crazy, you are called to be a faithful witness on your high school campus on your college campus for those of you who graduated. You are called to go and be the type of person who witnesses to the good news of Jesus rather than isolates yourself away from the world. It goes on in the back half of verse 15 this way. Again, he says, I'm not praying you take them out of the world. But what does he ask? He says, but that you would protect them from the evil one. From the evil one. What did I tell you at the very beginning? That there are three things coming your way like a freight train in the next day. It is opposition, it is temptation, it is distraction, and I need you to know that the evil one, the enemy of God, Satan, the devil himself, will be after you with everything he can to throw those things at you. See, here's what Jesus literally believed in, and so here's what I literally believe in. I literally believe there is a being called Satan, and his demons surround him. 
I literally believe in an individual called Satan. And all the time I say that on stages like this, and someone comes up to me after and goes, you're crazy for believing in Satan. Who believes in Satan? That's like an old-fashioned ancient thing used to scare children. They go, you're crazy to believe in Satan. And I look back at them and say, yeah, I may be crazy to believe in Satan, but I think you are crazy to look around the world, see all of the evil that's happening, and not think that there's a person behind it and a force behind it. See, the evil and wickedness in this world is not random. There is a force, there is a person, there is a driving force behind evil. There is a strategy behind evil. And that strategy has a name, and his name is Satan. And Jesus' prayer isn't that you would hit the eject button from the world, but rather that you would be protected from the evil one. So here's the strategy Satan's going to use. Jesus says, and I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And here's what Satan's going to do. He's going to come after all four of these things in the next week for you. Your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Let me give you four strategies Satan will use in the next week for you. If you're writing these down, here's the first one. The first one is deception. That is the battle for your mind. From the very beginning, Satan has been a deceiver. He is a liar. He will put thoughts in your mind. He will deceive you. He will tell you things that are not true. You know, a popular one he uses all the time. What happened up at camp wasn't real. It was all just emotion. It was fake. You should just go back to your normal life. Your church people don't really love you. They're gossiping about you. They hate you. They're looking down on you. They're judging you. Don't even go to church anymore. Satan is going to lie to you over and over. Satan is going to go, remember how great being drunk felt? Go back to doing that. Remember how great it felt to look at porn? Go back and look at that. That's what Satan is going to do. He's going to lie to you. See, deception is the battle for your mind. Number two, Satan is going to use discouragement. Discouragement is the battle for your heart. Satan is going to use something in the next few days that'll just get you down and make you bummed. You'll tell someone about how great camp was and they won't even care. You'll tell someone about how wonderful Jesus is and they'll make fun of you. You'll be discouraged and overwhelmed. You'll try to get together with your friends and they can't and Satan will discourage your heart and make you believe all is lost. See, deception is the battle for my mind. Discouragement is the battle for my heart. Number three, temptation is the battle for my strength. Satan will tempt my flesh he will try to get me to do the things that feel good in the moment but ruin me forever. That's what he will try to get me to do, and it's what he will try to get you to do. Temptation is coming at you. Whatever that thing is that you've been avoiding this week, it is coming at you, and that is the battle for your flesh. Deception is the battle for my mind. Discouragement is the battle for my heart. Um, temptation is the battle for my flesh. And what's the final one? The final one is accusation. Accusation is the battle for your soul. And here's what Satan will do. Satan will see you stumble and fall tomorrow or the next day or the next day after that or next month. And Satan will look at you and Satan will say, how could God ever forgive a sinner like you? You had your shot, you repented at camp, you've already gone back to your sin, you're lousy, your God has forsaken you, you are accused of sin and you are guilty as charged. And do you know what your job is when Satan accuses you? Your job is to claim, I know I am a sinner. In fact, I am a great sinner. But Satan, you go back to the hell you came from because I am a great sinner, but I have a great savior. His name is Jesus. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven, and you have no place in my life. That is what you are called to do. See, again, Jesus doesn't pray that you're taken out of the world. He says, I want you to be protected from the evil one. I want you to know he's going to go after your mind. He's going to go after your heart, your strength, and your soul. And he wants you to stand firm on who he is and the truth of what he's done. It goes on this way in verse 16. He says, they are not of this world, even as I am not of it. 
This not of this world theme runs all throughout John. And again, what does the world do? The world tells you to think a certain way, act a certain way, behave and operate a certain way. You know what the world loves to tell you? You've heard it all week. The world loves to tell you to live your own truth. You decide what's true for you. You famously hear it all the time. Speak your truth. What's your truth? Live your truth. Don't let anyone impose their truth upon you. That's how the world lives. But do you know what? We're not of this world. That's not us. We're not playing in that game. We are not playing in the game of what does my truth mean to me and what's my truth. We say there is no my truth or your truth. There's the truth, and the truth is Jesus, Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. They're in the world, but they're not of it. Verse 17, it says, sanctify them by the truth. And then what does it say here? Your word is truth. Remember this. We said this on Monday night. On Monday night, we said that the word of God allows the people of God to know the will of God. Do you want to be sanctified in the truth? Do you want to be sanctified, made like Jesus? Sanctified means being made holy, being made like Jesus. If you want to do that, you have to move the sent Bible to the center of your life. You have to become the type of person that is radical and fanatical about reading your Bible, who says it's a non-negotiable. It's not just a thing I might do. It is a person I am. And I wonder if you remember. What are the three things you need to do to move the Bible to the center of your life? One, you need to crush your excuses. Number two, you need to create a plan. Number three, you need to cultivate a lifestyle. It is not that you're going to go read your Bible. It is that you are Bible readers. The word of God is not some optional side dish to your life. It is the main thing. It is the thing that you're going to go after. And listen, if you've been reading your Bible this week, I am so proud of you. If you sat down and read through all of John, I'm so proud of you. But here's the deal. What I'm really proud of you is when you get home tomorrow night and you're exhausted and you're tired and it's been a long day and you've been in the car and you just want to go to sleep and you go, before I go to bed, I'm going to open the word of God. You know where I'll be really proud of you? Sunday morning you get up. And before you get going with all the things you have that day, going off to church or seeing your friends or whatever Sunday means for you, before you do that, you just go, hold on, I'm a Bible reader. i got to read the Word. Like, that's where I'm proud of you. You start to build that into your life as a rhythm and a pattern that is non-negotiable. Why? Because Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. And then how does that happen? Your Word is truth. And then verse 18 says this, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Let me read that to you again, and I want you to listen for the pronouns here. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. See, what I want to point out to you is it doesn't say, I have sent you into the world, and you into the world, and you into the world, and you into the world. No, 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 no. Jesus is fanatical about this, that he sends us out together. That like the whole point of following Jesus is not that it's this solo sport where we're supposed to do it alone and I with my own strength and the Holy Spirit and me just do this thing on my own. No, no, no. It's totally different. Let me put it to you this way. So um, your phone, you've had all week. Now let me ask two questions. Number one, um, who here like didn't pack a cord, has totally lost power to their phone. Anyone across the room? Okay, handful of you, handful of you, but like you don't not pack a cord. You'd like sooner not bring underwear than your cord, right? Like you bring the cord and you charge it. Why? You need power for your phone, right? Your, your phone needs power in order to work. If your phone does not have power, we don't say the battery is low or the battery is gone. We are so dramatic with our phones. We're like, it's dead. It's dead. That's so dead, right? That's what we say. Our phone is dead. And if you have no power, you know what you have in your hand? A super expensive paperweight, 
That's all this is. It is nothing. It is useless without power. But then here's what we all learn when we come up to Hume Lake. We drive up the hill, and again, we lose something really important that makes our phone work. So you can have all the power in the world, but if you don't have a network, if you don't have Wi-Fi, if you don't have your network working, your cellular coverage, then what you have is a very expensive paperwork that also serves as a thing you can take notes on and listen to music on and take some photos with, which is great, but that's not a phone. What are the two things you need for your cell phone to work? You need power and you need a network. What are the two things you need in order to face the opposition, the temptation, the distraction that is coming your way? What are the two things you need to thrive in the truth of Jesus? You need power and you need a network. And that power only comes through one thing. That power comes from the moment you call on the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ saves you. The Holy Spirit fills you, and you become a child of God. The power for you to walk in the Christian life happens the moment you are saved, the moment you come to faith in Jesus Christ. But then here's the mistake most Christians make. They have power, but they don't think they need a network. But you need two things, not just one. You need power, but you also need a network. And for your cell phone, it is Wi-Fi or cellular. But for your spiritual walk, there is one network that Jesus has created that you are called to be a part of. And that network is your local church. See, listen, camp is great. But if you are not connected in with your local church, I have very little confidence you will continue to follow after Jesus. I am pleading with you to lean in with your church to join small groups, to come to the summer programming, to go on the mission trip, to serve with the kids, to do whatever things are happening. Whenever the doors to your church are open, you're showing up. And not just one of those deals where you text your friends like, who's going tonight? Because if they're not going, you're not going. You know what you do? You text your friends, you go, I'm going tonight, come with me. That's what you do. You need your church and your church needs you. This is not a solo sport. You can't do it on your own. Jesus says, I am sending them. I'm sending them out together. It's not he's sending you, he's sending them. And for some of you, the great tragedy is that you'll leave this place and you'll try to follow Jesus on your own and it will not work. Because just like your phone was never meant to work without a network, neither was your walk with Jesus. Lean in to your local church after camp. Here's where we'll close tonight, verse 19. It says, for them I sanctify myself. That they true, too, may be sanctified. Like in other words, you know what Jesus' whole point of all of this is? The whole point of you knowing the truth, the whole point of you knowing it and holding to his teaching and experiencing the truth isn't just so you can know more things than other people. It is that you would be sanctified. Sanctified is a word that means made holy, made like Jesus. The whole point of you following after Jesus is that you would become like Jesus, that you would become holy, that you would become different, that God would change your life. Jesus says, I sanctify them myself that they too may become truly sanctified. Verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's a stunning sentence in the Bible. And some of you just blew right past that. Can I say that again? My prayer is not for them alone. Like in other words, Jesus is praying for his 12 guys. And he's like, hey God, I'm not just praying for the 12 guys. Here's who he's praying for. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. You know what's stunning? Those 12 guys told another 12 guys who told another 12 guys who told another 12 guys who told another 12 guys guys, until someday someone told you about Jesus. You know who Jesus is praying for here? He's praying for you. How stunning is that? 
right before Jesus went to the cross to die, he stopped and said, you know what? i got to pray for you, and you, and you, and you. Jesus prayed for you. See what happens here in this verse. Jesus says, I'm praying for not them alone, but those who will believe in me through their message. Here's what's stunning to me. Here's what's just so crazy. Jesus is praying for these 12 guys. And he's praying for them. He's like, a bunch of other people are going to believe your message. And could you even imagine what those 12 guys are thinking? They're like, okay, yeah, it's 12 of us right now. Maybe like a couple hundred people will believe the message. But because these 12 guys took Jesus seriously, we do not number the number of Christians in the world in the dozens or the hundred, but in the billions. On every continent and in every nation, there are people who are lifting up the name of Jesus, who are worshiping the same God we are, believing the same truth we believe in. Jesus speaks the truth to these 12 guys. And because of that, they turn the world upside down. And here's the question I want to close with. How did these three guys, or these 12 guys, have the power to turn the world upside down? How did they have the power to face the opposition, the temptation, and the distraction that were coming their way? How did they take the truth of Jesus and proclaim it to the world and change everything about our planet? And the answer to that question is simple. The disciples of Jesus did two things. And it is the two things you must do as you go home. Number one, they listened to Jesus. And number two, they did what he said. And because they listened to Jesus, and because they did what he said, because they listened to Jesus, and because they held to his teaching, the promise of Jesus was applied to them and it is the same promise that Jesus gives to everyone in this room. It is the same thing he was praying for everyone in this room. The promise was simple, that if you hold to my teaching, you are truly my disciples. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for tonight, and thanks once again for this room. Thank you for your truth Thank you that it is that truth that turned the world upside down as Jesus' disciples clang to it and as they actually lived it out. God, I pray the same thing would happen to high school campuses and families and towns and cities and every place where feet from this camp touch after this week. God, I pray for each young man and woman in this room that they would listen to what you have to say and that they would actually do it, that they would put it into action and that they would experience the power that flows through them when you set them free. Indeed, you are a good God, and Jesus, you are a good Savior. God, we thank you for the truth, and we pray the truth would reign in our lives. May it reign in our families. May it reign in our churches. May it reign in our cities. May it reign in our nation. God, may your truth reign on this earth. May the light continue to shine in the darkness, because the darkness will never overcome it. We pray this in the resurrected name of the truth himself, Jesus. And all God's people said real loud. Amen.